0: So today we have uh, Professor Chris Godson and Mark Pollard, and they're going to talk to us about whether or not the universe is sentient, and what implications that might have for archaeology. Thank you very much. Um, so
1: we're, we're going to, we we don't know quite how this is going to work, you'll be surprised to uh, surprised hear, <laughs> rather, than, rather than one of us give a long monologue and then the other one, we're going to try and... Dot backwards and forwards a little bit, but um, we'll see how it all all pans out. Um, So, why ask a question like, Is the universe sentient? You might well ask, but I'm sure you have already asked. Um, And we've both got slightly different answers to that particular question. Um, For me, and probably for both of us, for me, our notions of the ways in which the world works, so things like our division between nature and culture, I would say are quite questionable. What is nature and what is culture is quite difficult, if not impossible, to decide. And if it, if it is impossible to decide, um, then explanations that are around forms of physical determinism on the one hand which might be to do with climate um, environment more broadly genetics so some form of physical determinism on the one hand um, versus more cultural forms of determinism on the other hand people do things because of the ways in which their cultures are constructed Um, that dichotomy of, of between forms of explanation goes goes out of the window and if And those discussions, physical determinism versus cultural determinism, have been incredibly unhelpful and unproductive. And generally people stay in the position that they start with and don't stop. So if we're trying to think of a a mode of explanation which encompasses the physical across to the cultural, what would that look like? And one of the things it might look like is breaking down the things that we assign to culture and the things that we assign to nature and therefore thinking in a more holistic way. And if you are starting to think in a more holistic way, then the bruteness of matter on the one hand and the sentience of life and people on the other may be called into question. So then one might start to ask questions like, is the universe sent So, so what we're trying to do is to get out of older forms of explanation as we'll come on to later on older ways in which human history has been constructed around linear notions of progress, around people being in, in progressive control of their environment, all of those all of those sorts of things but we'll come back to some of that in a minute or two um, so uh, I'll start by telling you a, a story. So once upon a time, many years ago, I worked in the province of New Ireland in Papua New Guinea, and I dug a cave that turned out to be 35,000... Uh, the deposits in which turned out to be 35,000 years old, which was very nice in many ways. Um, and I also became quite interested in the colonial history of New Ireland. And so one day, some of the people that, that I lived with in the village... And took me to some old settlements because when the Germans turned up as the colonial power they brought everyone down to the coast and previously people had lived in all these small hamlets up in the interior and we walked up into the, a, a, a little way into the interior and saw all these old hamlets and things and on the way back they said now we want to show you something really interesting I said, oh, okay. and, and we went into the rainforest and, and, and eventually we came to this little sort of glade in the forest, which was quite a strange little spot in the landscape, which had grass surrounded by trees, and in the in the in and amongst the grass there were all these stones. And they said, "You see these stones?" And I of course said, "Yes." They were they were like sort of little stalactite things. They were quite strange. And, that, and they said, on certain occasions, these stones fly around, and they fly around just above ground level. And you've got to be careful because they fly quite fast. They can break your leg or whatever. And if you know what you're looking at, you can look at the motion of the stones and you can tell the future from the way in which the stones move. And I got, I got really excited. I say, oh, that's, that's great. I'd love to see them move. And they said, no, no, they wouldn't do it if a white person was around. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But, but it's left me with a question or a series of questions ever... Ever since. So one question is, do I believe that they believe that this is true? And the answer to this is undoubtedly yes. I think they were being sincere in, in what they were saying, that, that they believed for whatever reason that the stones could move and tell the future. Do I believe that the stones can move? And the answer is ultimately no. I, I tried various, you know, maybe there's a flood occasionally and they get rearranged or, you know, maybe the shaman comes in and <laughs> does them all when nobody's, nobody's looking. But I don't, I don't think... So, so, so it, ultimately, I'm, I've been left for years holding two incommensurable positions. People I like and respect, you know, I think are telling me the truth as they see it. It's not a truth I can embrace myself. So what does that, what does that mean, ultimately, and um, um, where are we in, a, in and amongst that, you know, the, the, the various possibilities for the ways in which the universe work? And, of course, beliefs that one might label animism, that things that we would take to be inanimate stones could move, um, are very widespread. So, so lots of people in Papua New Guinea believe it throughout Southeast Asia into mainland Asia infuses into Buddhism and you know, forms of, of Shintoism, animism. So there are lots of people in the world who believe equivalent things, and, and, and taking a, you know, a democratic view to dismiss them all out of hand is, is tricky. Um, and also, many of the people that we studied in the past, I mean, clearly we don't know what most, well, what almost any of them believed, but, but it's quite likely that some of them believed things of this type so so where does that leave us do we just say that's not true we we only embrace a mechanical newtonian view of the universe we're not going to allow stones to move or any of these sorts of things that's just not not what we're going to do or do we start to explore those sets of possibilities in some way now there are people within the western tradition who we probably are more likely to give credence to for better or for worse so there's a bunch of philosophers quite hard bitten analytical philosophers some of them this guy Galen Strawson amongst them Um, so they're worried about the problem of consciousness so where do you get consciousness from Um, and so in a western ontology a western view of the world there are lots of things that aren't conscious matter that's that's out there which which combines together eventually into things that are conscious. And 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 how do we describe those things? I mean either there's some form of emergent property that, that brings together the, the, the unconscious, the, the non-sentient things into something that becomes sentient, or the second possibility, and some of these people embrace that possibility is that everything is sentient that some at some level and that and that is obviously a logically possible explanation for the problem of, of consciousness um, I hesitate my partner in crime quantum mechanics of which I'm a, a, a world a world expert as I, I'm sure you're I'm fascinated by all this stuff. so so entangled particles um, there, are, as, as many of you in this room will know far better than I do, and I've read, I saw sort a of thing on YouTube. This one, it was great, explained entangled <laughs> particles in way that I, ways that I could understand. So, so my understanding of entangled particles is that there are two particles, photons, whatever, and the state of one—the spin, the polarization, the whatever it happens to be—is the inverse of the other one, and when one changes, so does the other one and these changes can happen at, at, in, in particles that are, that are a long way away from each other and they happen at speeds beyond the speed of light so if, if a particle changes in, in Basel and another one does in Berkeley they change you know, instantaneously faster than light could get so, so again people are very puzzled about this, this state of affairs and have started talking about it, and I think it's interesting that our language breaks down when talking about these things. Have started talking about it in terms of information, that, that maybe they're related through forms of information in some way, and, and related, and one is able to monitor the state of the other. And if that's true in some way at some level, that is not a million miles from what we would call sentience that one particle is in some way aware, and again, as I say, language language lets you down, in, in some way aware of the state of the other one. And and this, again, in a Newtonian universe, is quite difficult to quite difficult to encompass and to to make any sense of. I think I will I won't um, oh yeah, so so you know, just one last thing before I hand over to mark the the obvious thing to say about sentience um, is that if things are sentient particles rocks whatever then they're clearly not sentient in the way that we're sentient Uh, uh, and so this book how forests think um, is about the nature of of intelligence within a rainforest and he says there are all sorts of interlinked intelligences there are monkeys there are tapirs there are snakes and they're all intelligent but if you if you think of them as having a deficient form of human intelligence then that is definitely not the way to go and, and so for, if we're thinking about sentience at some level then to think of, of other aspects of the universe as being sentient but in a way that's a deficient form of our sentience then that clearly is not going to be helpful or productive. And at that slightly unhelpful and unproductive juncture, I'll... I'll yeah, we'll, yeah. <laughs> went, uh, yes, oh yeah, we I won't... yes. get away towards. with that. How do I get
0: that back? <laughs> um, You've got to realise that these are results of a series of conversations over the years on buses travelling long distances through Central Asia or often sat in the pub. Whereas I'm sure you realise things gradually begin to seem really sensible. So I want you to just take these discussions in that light. Um, Is the universe sentient is a question which no archaeological theoretician can uh, refuse to engage with. And since I am no archaeological theoretician, here we are. Um, I just want to address the question from the beginning. Um, about the idea, I want to start with thinking about the ideas of materiality and agency because I think to a physical scientist these are non-intuitive ideas so I just want to spend a few slides trying to tell you why I am now convinced that uh, object agency is a valid form of looking at the universe. So in the, I've, I've labelled it the materiality world, but in, this, in the way that we look at these things, objects have agency over humans, or at least agency is shared between objects and humans, and, and that would be the, the position that you take. Um, now, of course, in you know, what I've called the rationalist world, and by that I mean in the Western scientific rationalist world, this is complete nonsense. This, this chair has no agency, in that sense. Or it only has agency because I choose to give it agency. If I were to pick it up and drop it on Professor Tide's head, then um, I think he would feel that it was my agency that was <laughs> created that incident and not the chair's agency. So, but, but what I'd like to just begin to get you to loosen the shackles on is that, oh, agency. Um, I'm rather obsessed by the agency of hats. And one of the things that, that encourages me to think that agency is real is that if you observe human behaviour, there are certain aspects of it which are liberated, I think we could say, or enhanced by... Um, objects. And and one tends to behave in a way which one wouldn't normally behave simply by the fact that you are entitled to do so by wear, wearing certain things or in the presence of certain things or carrying certain things. Uh, this is one example. Note the vestigial hat. Uh, this is another example. I'm sure these are all uh, stockbrokers or you know, um, university academics or whatever. But in in wearing this outfit, they are enabled. At least they're enabled to behave in a way which they wouldn't consider behaving in you know in everyday life. Um, and one might go further than that and say maybe actually you know these rather silly hats have an agency which is forcing people to behave in that way. So thinking thinking in physics, which I used to know something about 30 years ago but don't very much now, is that I'd just like to draw your attention to what we might call particle, to what we can call particle-wave duality. And that, as many of you know, is the way in which if we look at light as a wave, if we consider light as a wave, then we, through an experiment like Young's slits, we can get light to behave as a wave. It is clearly a wave, and you can write wave equations, and light is a wave, and that answers that question. But of course, the photoelectric effect, um, which Einstein got the Nobel Prize for, um, demonstrates that actually light is, it behaves as a particle and you can't explain the photoelectric effect using a wave explanation. So the light rays whack into an object and they emit the electrons and the energy of the emitted electrons is equal to the difference between the incoming energy and the binding energy of those electrons. So that has to have an energy explanation. And so, as far as I'm aware, in physics, we're still very comfortable with saying, well, under certain conditions, we can think about light as a particle, and under other conditions, we can consider light as a wave. And that's uh, ambiguity, which everybody is comfortable with thinking about. And so the parallel, um, I'm not not, not trying to apply these equations to (laughs) human behavior. But as an analogy, it seems to me, rather than having particle wave duality, we might be able to think in terms of human-object duality, in that we can think of everything as being um, agency of humans and nothing else. Or we can think of objects having agency and interacting with humans on that level and we can switch from one to the other I mean in particle wave duality you're very happy to have one set of explanations and then without feeling embarrassed you switch to another set of explanations so um, that in a nutshell is why I think that the materiality of objects and the agency of objects is something we should address in 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 a serious manner and so that brings us back to, is the universe sentient or do things think? And I can't remember whether it's now me or you. It's no, me. I think it's you. Okay.
1: boy, yeah, yeah.
0: You can tell <laughs> this is highly repetitive. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to try and put forward another argument which, which would say that um, sentience, uh, inorganic materials can be sentient, but I think it's a matter of uh, time scale. And so my argument is hinges on time. So we're we're, um, conversant, we're uh, happy with the idea that that, uh, animate objects are sentient in some way or other. I think we shouldn't fall into the trap, as Chris said, of thinking that everything is trying to be sentient like we are, and some fail. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, but for inorganic objects uh, can, we, can we think of sentience in terms of in, inorganic objects and that gets you to thinking about what is the difference between animate and inanimate what do we, um, what do we think is the fundamental parameter are the fundamental parameters that, that help us distinguish between those two and to pluck a couple from the air um, awareness of the environment is one thing and I think animate things have the ability to reproduce, inanimate things we would think of as normally not having. So I'd like to challenge both of those things. I think that um, we can think of inanimate objects certainly responding to their environment. I think I might try and shift the argument away from sentience to simply responding to their environment, and there is no doubt that on a range of timescales, uh, inanimate inorganic materials respond to their environments. Mountains—I'm about to burst into song here—river deep and mountain high. But I'll don't say don't. that. Yeah. Um, so, according to the laws of physics and thermodynamics, uh, inorganic materials respond um, to the environment. Um, but not critically, and I think this is an area I'd like to explore further, critically not on, typically not on a time scale that is, um, that is perceptible to the human lifetime. So I might argue, I, if I was in a pub I probably would argue, that actually animate and inanimate are distinguished in terms of the time scale in which they respond. And the animate objects respond on a time scale that we can perceive within a human lifetime. A tree grows, a kitten is born, and it's then squashed <laughs> on the road, or whatever. Um, so that happens on a, ta- a human time scale. But inorganic materials, or in- inanimate objects, uh, are responding on a much longer time scale. And so we don't see them, and we think they're inanimate. But they do grow, they do reproduce. This is uh, stalactites, which are a classic example of crystal growth. Um, The crystals there precipitate out of the drops of water on a very slow timescale, but they grow. So we cannot say that inanimate materials do not grow. They grow. Um, On the right is uh, uh, corrosion products on some nice Chinese bronzes, and they grow. So we have this concept of growth. We might even think of it as with a stretch. We might even argue there's some reproduction going on here in that uh, <laughs> crystals will seed other crystals which then form new precipitates. And so it's a, it's a, it's a stretch. But, um, so we could certainly think of these things as going through what we might think of as a birth-death life cycle, but on a long time scale that we don't perceive so we could begin to think of an inorganic analogy to life itself Um, so the inorganic world responds to its environment but i would argue on time scales that are not perceptible within a human lifetime and then i would say that in order to respond they must be able to sense their environment how a crystal senses its environment through chemical thermodynamics through energy through physical properties, but it senses its environment, otherwise it couldn't respond. So in order to respond, an object must be able to sense its environment. Uh, I was going to put QED then, but I think that might be a little uh, strong. Um, But in some senses, an inorganic object is therefore sentient. Does that sound like the Gaia theory, which, you know, I. well to some extent yes it does it argues for interlinked systems but rather critically I think I would say that this is the Wikipedia definition of Gaia Um, so the earth forms a synergistic self-regulating complex system that helps to maintain and perpetuate the conditions for life on the planet actually I would switch it round and say um, Gaia (coughs) seems to privilege organisms over inorganic materials that's the sense in which it's written and I would say that the argument that I'm trying to put forward is, is that we should see them at least as equal partners, and possibly even that the organic is subordinate to the inorganic. Um, and you might say that you know, natural disasters or the growth of glaciation would suggest that it's inorganic, it, it's the organic which is subordinate to the organic. Uh, sorry. It's the organic, which is subordinate to the inorganic. <laughs> it is story, right? There you are. Yeah. This is in bits, by the right. way. We're, we're in, in bits. Yeah, yeah. And so, just a
1: word about archaeology in amongst this, and the and the disciplinary structure of archaeology. I mean, if we're if we're thinking of of being uncertain about the nature culture divide, and and where cause and effect come from, and And go to, then the ideal would be to create disciplines that that span what we've come to think of as the sciences on the one hand and the the social sciences and humanities on the other. And there are a small number of those disciplines. There's one right next door, geography. Um, There may be geographers in this room. I would say that they don't deal with that divide very well. But I would say, and I would say this as an archaeologist, I think archaeology deals with that we all talk to each other, we all get on, we all have common cause. But very often what happens is we exchange information at a rather sort of technical, methodological level, and we don't necessarily think in a more philosophical manner, which draws on the, the, the thought process of the, of the more sciencey side and the more wishy-washy. Um, social sciences side, where where I am. So so, in a sense, our discussions have been part of part of that. And 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 if one's going to think in a more sort of transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary, whatever way, um, then then um, disciplines like archaeology are important. And we would say discussions like this are important to try and get us to think about how we're considering modes of of cause and effect. What are the, you know, what is the place of people in the in the universe and all of those sorts of things? Uh, so one of the things, uh, so so it, it will be interesting to see what others others think about the position and, and possible role of archaeology in in these matters. Um, to to pick up where Mark was was talking about one of the I mean the great thing about archaeology in terms of its understanding of humans is that we deal with the longest term. So we're dealing with hominins over the last five million years or however long hominins have, have been around, and no other discipline really does that in the same way. And therefore, as, as Mark was saying, if, we, if we're thinking of, of our frame of reference in terms of millions of years or millennia or at the very least sort of centuries and so on, then human relationships between what we take to you know the, the living nature of human beings and what we take to be the inanimate nature of things start to change because the things at those timescales are definitely animate. Things are you know, over a century, over a millennium, over a you know longer time span, things are, are being created, rotting, and destroyed, and, and people not as not as people that we would understand them today. People that live for 80 years or however they live, however long they live. But people over the really long term um, are, are are a different set of forces and are placed in the world in a different set of ways than than you know sociology might think of a of, of a person or even even the historians who tend to use pretty short timescales. So if Marx's right, and and I think he is. That, that things are changing over long time scales. then if we're interested in the long history of humans, then those temporal relationships are very different to any other discipline and we need to entertain the possibility um, that, that things that we take to be inanimate are animate and, and, and therefore may be sentient. And the other thing I think we might both say, although we haven't quite got that far yet, is, is a commitment to complexity. That whatever we think about the world and the human world, <coughs> then we we as humans are in a mass of relationships with metalwork, with plants, with animals, with stones, with buildings, with whatever, and 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 therefore rather to to see human agency as the be all and end all is not the way to go that we're in constant relationship with all these other things and and they're being shaped by us and are influenced by us but equally speaking we're we're shaped and influenced by them and we we like to think that we're in control but maybe we're not so you know domesticating sheep and and wheat and whatever by doing that you have to start to to uh, abide by the rules of the sheep you know the sheep need grass they need protection from the wolves and all those sorts of things so it's not necessarily people in sole charge or or maybe even you know in charge at all that that people are in a network of relationships with a whole range of things some of which are living some of which aren't and and we need to think in in complex terms in in order (coughs) to understand all these things and, and so for me and I'm not sure where Mark would go on this I would be uncertain about modes of human history that are highly directional and I think many of them are and I'm not, I can't remember quite which, ah oh, oh, yeah here we are I'll come back to the previous one so, so this, is, this is from Renfrew and Bun um, so it's human history going from bands to tribes to chieftains to states and, and a well-known uh, progression of, of human history and it is very much progress and it's predicated I mean this is this is 19th century thinking encoded into the 20th century often through the medium of the writings of Gordon Child. so for Child, uh, as you all know there were three revolutions in, in human history the, the Neolithic revolution the urban revolution and the industrial revolution and each of those gave human beings more control over the planet than they'd had before. So so history was progressive, but it was also a history of human control. So if you take the point of view that humans aren't in control, then it's harder to construct a progressive directional history and you're thinking more in terms of contingency of, of things going off in various different directions. And And this... Sort of works for some parts of the world, but obviously doesn't for lots and lots of parts of the world. Maybe that, maybe the majority. So, so I would say one of the implications of what we're saying is a much less, maybe a non-directional view of, of human history, which has has humans as as one set of forces, but always enmeshed in other in other forces. Um, so I will just go back. So so. Um, thinking about the relationship between people and objects so stuff that we might call art art is a a, a tricky a tricky term obviously and I won't I won't defend it or uh, critique it at this moment but but objects so this is a this is a so-called Scythian object may may or not be a Scythian object I I won't go there either but uh, but it's a very complicated object um, and one that requires a whole set of, of responses from people, if if you want to respond to it. So I was influenced by a book called What Do Paintings Want, um, and I wrote an article ages ago called What Do Objects Want. So What Do Paintings Want says uh, it's by a man called W J T Mitchell, an art historian. He says if you look at a painting that's painted from the, from a perspectival manner. If you're to appreciate the painting as the painting wants you to do, and you don't have to, then you have to in some ways obey the laws of perspective. So so objects of particular forms impose rules on humans. Now this is an object, and obviously a non-perspectival object, if you can see there are two animals, probably deer, or maybe two animals, that are joined at the, at the rump, so you could see them as two animals, you could see them as one animal that's been opened out along an axis. So it, it, this object is, is quite a tricky one to look at because there's a lot going on there. And, and in the looking at the object, how far is the, is the impetus coming from the viewer and how far is it coming from the object itself? And if it's coming from the object itself, and I think it's hard to argue that it's not coming from the object, the way we see the object is partly structured by the object. If we take that point of view, then the object is certainly an agent and possibly animate in the sense that it's it's conditioning the human sensorium, um, the ways in which we're responding to the world. And once we've seen one set of things in one way, then then that will feed through in subtle manners into the way in which we see other things. So So it has an agency of you know in and of itself but 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 beyond um, beyond. So so I won't I won't go on too much, but I and I've said some of this to, to to some people before, I mean I and slightly tongue in cheek, I don't think I believe in the Neolithic um, in, the, in the childian sense, and Rick and I were talking about this the other day, in the childian sense that the Neolithic imposes a, 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 or represents a new set of controls that people have. I mean, I think it, it represents a different set of complexities and new sets of relationships, but I wouldn't see the Neolithic as, as providing control over the food source or any of those sorts of things, which then has the consequences of. of urbanism and various other oops, sorry, I'm going back to, urbanism and various other things and, and in lots of parts of the world so I've worked as I mentioned in, in New Guinea and Borneo and places like that I mean the Neolithic is a whole different thing there some people have it, some people don't the people who don't are quite happy and, and get on and have their own history so there are large areas of the world for which the, the, the Neolithic has, has little or, or no relevance and, and we're starting to think in, in temporally complicated terms but I think also in spatially complicated terms and if we are thinking of, of Eurasia as a system so this is this is a, a, a possible rendering of Eurasia in the first millennium BC um, and what the possibility is that there are a whole series of groups over here that were in interaction with each other we can see that in in terms of artwork and various things, and they may or may not have been in interaction with, with people of the West. Once once you start thinking in, in spatially complex terms, then again notions of direction, notions of, of finite histories, all of those sorts of things are much more difficult to sustain. There are flows of influence and energy going backwards and forwards and and, and things that we might take to be inanimate are, are thought to be animate, Um, and and it provides us with a much more complicated version of of, um, human history.
0: I I want to just return for a minute to think about time. Um, Time is a tricky subject because it's one of the few things that if you go and look in the Oxford English Dictionary to find out what is time... It simply tells you that time is that quantity which is measured by clocks, which is a really interesting definition. I mean, it tells you that more than one type of clock, but it talks about uh, time being that. It doesn't tell you what it is, it just says how you measure it. And I think that's conceptually really interesting. But I mean, obviously, you know, we're used to astronomical time. Earth's rotation, the lunar month, the solar year, the sidereal year, And for those of you that like precision, the second is now defined as 9.192631882 times 10 to the 9 cycles of radiation uh, in the cesium ion. Um, So that's, in a sense, a physical definition of time. Time is also that thing which flows and, and, you know, why does time only go in one direction? Well, you know, you can tell we're clearly in, in pub talk area here. Uh, but time is inexorable, unidirectional, irreversible and has a constant rate of flow. Why is that? Because the things that give direction to the arrow of time, so-called, are things like physical processes, radioactive decay, only ever, as far as we know, goes in one direction. C14 atoms do not spontaneously grow um, and go and, and turn back into nitrogen. So, um, and there are natural processes, the laws of thermodynamics, in particular entropy. And then on a human scale, there are biological processes. Uh, many of us are no longer quite what we'd like to think we were 30 years ago so the time goes in, in one direction um, but I think we need to be more within archaeology and history I think we need a more complex understanding of time and Brodel's work which is widely quoted I think is, is, is interesting that there are a number of levels of time, the longue durée which is geographical time which he calls it And that's over thousands of years. Social time, particular groups, hundreds of years. And then individual time, diary of events in a person's life. We can all relate to all of those. I would add to those, there are sub-annual time that we need to bear in mind. And in parts of the world, that might be seasons. Summer, winter are quite different in some parts of the world. There's also monsoon time and non-monsoon time but even in a in a tropical forest where you might think that, that there is no season then there's time when the jackfruit fruits and then there's time when something else fruits and so there are these subannual cycles but i'd now like to um go back and think of the role of objects in time because i'm now beginning to be obsessed by the role of objects um, Nobody, when they see the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, can do anything other than think of the 1st of September 1967, when the album was released. Um, And you look at that, and there are so many things about that 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 scream 1967, that for most people, um, we would look at that and think, okay, 1960s. We'd look at something from early earlier centuries, um, Elizabethan England and, you know, the roughs and the jewellery and all that stuff. And, and so we're very used to um, thinking in terms of material culture as marking time. You can look at a photograph of the 1970s, and it can only be the 1970s, the long hair, yeah. <laughs> Boy, jeans. Oh dear. Sorry. Um, but in most cases we look at things and, and, and time is is marked by the material culture that is surrounding us but I'd now like to go beyond that and think what happens if objects as agents remember I'm now in a world where I've got human object duality so I can think of either the human history or I can think of objects as agency Um, what happens if more than marking time if objects create time Um, so and perhaps even by making objects we are making time now this I think this begins to open up fascinating if slightly weird areas to think about Um, And I'm reminded, I think this is uh, building on what Chris said a few minutes ago, uh, Mary Beard, for instance, on one of those really quite good TV programs, said that it isn't the Roman emperors that are making the empire, it's the empire which are making the emperor. And this goes back to Chris's argument about it's the sheep that, are, that domesticate us in a sense and that we've got to deal with that. So what happens if it's these objects which are creating time itself? Now, it's slightly wacky, but um, what's our question? What is there outside the expanding universe? Answer. Nothing. Question. What is Nothing and I think the answer to what is nothing is the absence of anything and I think that is uh, related to the fact that time is only actually defined when you've got space-time, when you've got matter to define space and time then you you can have time but without that if there is no matter or energy E equals MC squared If there's no matter or energy, then there is no time, and therefore we're into nothing. So, again, I'm using this as an analogy, not as a model, but what I'm trying to argue with is that it is objects or matter which which create and define time. This is my summary. Um, So I'll give my summary, and then I'll hand over to Chris to give his summary. But my summary is trying to rationalise this. Um, Why does any of this matter? Um, Well, I think it matters, A, because it's interesting, and B, because it's a philosophical set of discussions that we tend not to have, and um, we can only enrich ourselves by having such philosophical discussions, particularly in a bar with a few beers. Um, But I think, and I've said this several times, so I'll I mean essentially material science in archaeology or even material culture studies in archaeology on the whole are answering the, the when, where, what type question and the how question. So they conventionally produce rationalist answers which are object A's made from uh, raw materials X and Y and they come from using techniques... A and B, well oh, I've got my techniques and method's <laughs> mixed up but you, you, X is made of A and B using techniques Y and Z at time T and that's a rationalist um, um, explanation um, but if we want to answer the how the, 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 the Y question which I think is a really interesting question I think we have to accept that there are other universes other than the rationalist universe we have to understand the meaning of these objects and the meaning of these objects is not necessarily rational and you know back to my novelty hats or whatever you know the meaning is not necessarily rational and it can influence behavior in a in a particular way. So, I mean, my my understanding of why this matters is that we need, I guess the simple thing is, we need to try and get into the minds of these people, and we need to try and understand what their worldview was. I mean, I've argued for many years that alchemy, which historically, at least, has been viewed as a non-rational, slightly loony thing, is actually entirely rational. Um, if you have an understanding of the universe, such as would have been the case in the early medieval, high medieval period, if you look at the world from the way they understood matter and material and object, then actually the activities of the alchemist are, make complete sense. And so in my view, it's, it's, uh, if we're going to try and understand these more interesting questions about material culture, I think we have to try and understand the way individuals' mind works. And going back to Chris's New <coughs> Ireland people, you know, they clearly thought that these stones got up and flew around. And so that's an important thing for us to try and build into our explanation of how their world works. Oh,
1: I've got it. Yeah, you've got one last.
0: So these are I powerful objects. Yeah. I got right, the go. Okenev, um stone carvings. I don't think there's a. So what's it? Oh, yeah.
1: The agency. Of, uh, so I don't have much to say in terms of of summing up, except uh, and and it's repeating what some of some of the things <coughs> that Marcus said I mean we've constructed long-term human history over the last 150 years in very particular ways um, around notions of direction and notions of control and as Mark said that doesn't help us understand the ways in which many of the people who we studied would have thought about history Uh, when we some of us heard a, a presentation on aboriginal australian art last night and, and for Aboriginal Australian people, the art has always been there. There's no point in asking when this was created, who who did it. This is part of the way in which the landscape emerged and people emerged with the landscape. So and, and I, I think there are exciting possibilities ahead. I think many people are uncertain about things like distinctions between nature and culture, highly directional forms of history highly um forms of history that look very much like our history and then are written as global history Um, and and in order to to step out of where we are into something possibly rather new then (coughs) wacky questions like is the universe sentient may, may be one of the ways at least to go and i'll i'll leave it